of holies, every stitch, every piece of uh, lumber that was used, all of it, and how those things were supposed to be used in the daily sacrifices, one way. And over the last few Sundays, we've seen Ahaz change that way, and Uriah, the priest, accept it rather than rebuking him. So look with me now in verse 17 as we continue our study. 2 Kings chapter 16, if you've just tuned in, verse 17. And King Ahaz cut off the borders of the bases and removed the laver from off them and took down the sea from off the brazen oxen that were under it and put it upon a pavement of stones. Now in... 1 Kings chapter 7, when we studied the life of Solomon, particularly his reign over Israel, we noticed that there were several of these lavers or water pots. That's a real common name for them, but they were made of some fancy material, weren't they? We, we read about those and how there were several of them made, I believe 10, and in verse 39 of that chapter, tells us that Solomon set the sea, that's, that is the bowl, that's what holds the water. It's called a sea because it has water in it. He set the sea on the right side of the house eastward over against the south. So the sea was what held the water. Whenever the Levites... And the craftsmen were commanded to make the first labor. There was just one. And that was the one that was hauled around when the tabernacle moved from place to place in the wilderness. There was one labor. You had the brazen altar on the east side when you entered into the courtyard. And then you had the labor, which held the water. And that's where the priests washed before they went into the holy place where there was the table of showbread and the candlestick and then the altar of incense, and then the Holy of Holies after that that had the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. That's just review for you if you've already studied that. If you haven't, it's Greek, isn't it, or Hebrew, because you don't know what it means. But nevertheless, that's where it originated. And so there was just that one laver. And in fact, Exodus chapter 30, verse 18, Exodus 30, verse 18, is important to us because we see that what Ahaz did was against what God did. God said, Thou shalt also make a laver of brass and his foot, that is what holds it, also of brass to wash withal. And thou shalt put it between the tabernacle of the congregation and the altar. That's the brazen altar. And thou shalt put water therein. So the location and the purpose of the original labor were given there in the Exodus verse. So based upon what we read in 1 Kings chapter 7, verse 39, that labor that was put on the east side had to be at least the same type of labor as the one in Exodus. The purpose had to be the same. Uh, Solomon didn't just come up with the idea of putting a labor, a wash basin, on the east side of the tabernacle or of the temple in his day. And it was in either case, whether it was in Exodus or in 1 Kings and now in 2 Kings, that labor was for the priests 
to wash in before they went into the tabernacle or the temple in Solomon's day. And whereas the brazen altar and the sacrifices on it represented the one sacrifice that Jesus Christ would make on the cross, the laver and the water in it represented the word of God. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, and listen for the word water. Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Jesus cleansed his church by the, with the washing of water by the word. <clears throat> and that word is the gospel of Jesus Christ for us who believe on him. And as the water and the laver cleansed the priest ceremonially in the Old Testament, God's word cleanses us spiritually and there was there was no alteration that was authorized for this labor the way god said it was to be built was the way it was supposed to be built in moses day and there was nothing but water that was supposed to be put in that labor they didn't mix it with anything god said put water in there to wash with so in our text when Ahaz cut the legs off of this laver, and then he moved it and put it on a pavement of stones, that was essentially changing God's word. That's If the water in the laver represents God's word, and that laver is what holds God's word, which is what our Bible is to us, this holds God's word. The, the pages themselves aren't God's word. They're where God's word is written. Because God's word existed before it was ever written down. So it doesn't depend on whether we have it in writing as to whether it's God's word. But it sure is helpful, isn't it? So what he did, what Ahaz did, is he altered what God had ordained. And God said, this is how you build it and this is what goes in it. And Ahaz says, no, I'm going to... I'm going to bring it down lower. I'm going to cut the bases off of it. I'm going to put it over here on this pavement of stones where I think it belongs. He relegated it to a different place than where it was. He modified this laver to his liking, didn't he? And he put the laver where he thought it was acceptable. And the Bible has been treated this way by many. Going all the way back to the Old Testament, in fact, God's people treated his word this way as well. The Bible uh, is, is being treated this way by many churches, and the Catholic Church is just one of them. The Bible is kissed by the priest, and they hold it up, and <clears throat> they'll kiss it, and, but the people aren't told to bring their Bibles to church. One thing you're not going to hear in a Catholic church is the priest to get up and say, I want everybody to take your Bibles and open them to this passage right here, and I'm going to teach you about it. You're not going to hear that. 
You're going to hear a bunch of different readings, and some of them come from the Scriptures, and some of them may come from other uh, books or, or writings. And then you're going to hear what they call the homily or the sermon. And that's whatever the priest decides he's going to say that day. But you're not going to be told to bring your Bibles and to open your Bibles. That just doesn't happen. And if it does, then that Catholic church has become something else. Well, the Catholics are told what the Vatican says that God says, rather than having the preeminence in the church, the word of God has been treated like a mystery. It's been put over here on a pavement of stones. It's had the legs cut off of it. And the secret, the mystery of it is only to be unlocked by a select few. And of course, those are the priests. When I uh, was at a church in, in Rowlett, Brother Fulton invited my pastor and me to come to a missions conference. It was a pastor's conference, actually, at Willow Springs Baptist Church. So this is a long time ago. And one of the men who spoke at that conference was a prison missionary. I believe it was Rock of Ages Prison Ministries. And he told us what it was like to grow up as a Catholic. He grew up in a Catholic home. And he said he began asking his mother spiritual questions. And she told him, you need to go ask the priest about that. And so the priest gave him a lot of answers, but he never gave the young man a Bible. He never encouraged him to study his Bible. The priest told that little boy that others would study the Bible and tell you what it says, and that's the way it worked. And friend, that is nothing more than cutting the legs off of the laver and setting it on a pavement of stones. The laver filled with water in the Old Testament greeted every priest who stood between the brazen altar and the entrance to the tabernacle, the entrance to the holy place. And God's word should greet every person who enters into the door of the church. It ought to be as a laver of water from which everyone may drink. And by God's grace, we are never going to cut the legs off of the laver and move it somewhere besides where it belongs. If you ever, and, and you won't hear, but if you ever see a pastor that doesn't bring one of these, whether he has it here or on his phone, he doesn't take you straight to the Bible when he starts speaking. And he goes through his whole message and may give a hat tip to something that he heard was said in the Bible. That's not a preacher. That's not somebody you need to hear. He may be entertaining. He may be a great orator using all sorts of fancy words. He may be a charming person, but he's not a Bible teacher, and that's what you need, and that's what I need. And we're not going to take the legs off the labor to our own liking. After all, we too are members of a royal priesthood. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5 tells us so where it says, Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house, an holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we're not offering up animal sacrifices. We're offering up spiritual sacrifices. 
The psalmist said, we bring the sacrifice of praise into the house of the Lord. There you go. That's not an animal. That's the sacrifice of praise. And then in chapter, uh, in the same book, 1 Peter chapter 2, but down in verse 9, he wrote, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. There it is again. An holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now let's look back in our text there in verse 18. Verse 18. And the covert for the Sabbath that they had built in the house, and the king's entry without, turned he from the house of the Lord for the king of Assyria. All right, let's look at that. That, that doesn't, uh, in the translation we have here, that doesn't make itself plainly known to us. So what is this covert for the Sabbath? A covert is a covering. And so it means a covering for the Sabbath. And this term is not mentioned specifically elsewhere in the Bible. However, there is a passage in Ezekiel chapter 46 that might help us a little bit. And I'll read it for you. Ezekiel 46 verses 1 through 2. Thus saith the Lord God, The gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east shall be shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened. And in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. And the prince shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate without, and shall stand by the post of the gate, and the priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go forth, but the gate shall not be shut until the evening. Now if you read the rest of that chapter in Ezekiel, you'll see that the people of the land who came to the temple came in one gate and they left through another. But the prince had a special entry place and he went out the same way he came in. And although the word covert or covering is not mentioned in Ezekiel when describing that place, we see that there was a command for the prince who was a leader or governor. It doesn't, it's not just, it's not the fairy tale prince you're thinking of. It is, he is a leader or a governor of his people. And so there was a command given to that prince about how to access the tabernacle, where to go in, where to stand, where to worship. And in our text, we may properly infer that there had been a way into the temple area and a place in the temple area where the king himself came. Because that's what's being talked about in verse 18. And for Ahaz to remove these places because of the king of Syria, of Assyria, and that's what it says at the end of the verse, he did all this for the king of Assyria. For him to remove these places because of the king of Assyria was to alter his own religious practices to please a Gentile king. Ahaz was so religious, but so far removed from God. And how many people are there like Ahaz? They're in the house of the Lord, but they're lost. 
They've brought their own righteousness, not considering that the Bible says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags in the sight of God. Now let's look in verse 19. And the rest of the acts of Ahaz which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? The rest of the acts of Ahaz which he did. Now these would be as bad or worse than what we read. Because there was not any redeeming work that was ascribed to his name. We don't read that he was a pretty good king or an okay king. He was an evil king. And we got down in the weeds with what that meant. He'd done great damage to the children of Israel, to himself, to all of those who were in Judah. In verse 20, And Ahaz slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And Hezekiah his son reigned in his stead. So now Ahaz is off the scene. However, his evil works are not. They always leave a lasting impression. And you know when a new president comes in, particularly if if he's a president we believe is a good man, he has a lot of work to do to clean up the mess that went before him. And it's become fashionable for every president, the newly, newly elected ones, to say, I inherited this mess from my predecessor. Now, you'd have to be foolish to say that if you were reelected because your predecessor was you. <laughs> and we have one who should say that. He inherited this mess from his predecessor if he gets uh, reelected. But the wounds and the scars on the people are significant. And Hezekiah is their next hope. And we'll come to him a few weeks down the road. Let's look at chapter 17. Now we move back to Israel, the northern kingdom, the northern ten tribes, to study another, unfortunately, evil king. In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, began... Hoshea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. Now the name Hoshea is the same Hebrew name as was given to Joshua when he was born. He was born and named Hoshea, the son of Nun. And it's also the same name as the prophet whom we're studying during our 11 o'clock hour the prophet Hosea, as we call him. But they all come from the same name, although the, this Hosea is nothing like the other two. He can't hold a candle to them. And we don't have much information on his father, Eli. Now, there was a ruler named Eli, but it was, he was back in 1 Kings. And so many generations have passed since he went off the scene. This Hosea couldn't possibly be his son. But Hosea reigned in Samaria, which was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. And in verse 2 it says, And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. So he is what I would call the lesser of two evils. 
He wasn't as bad as Ahaz. And do you know, for some people, that's good enough. Some people are willing to elect someone who's not as bad as the person before. And sometimes that's all we're left with, isn't it? I find myself at the polls knowing certain information about the candidates and thinking, my goodness, I don't want to vote for either one of them. However, this one seems to be more like Hosea. He's a little less evil than the other one, in my opinion, and so I cast my vote. And that's what we're reduced to every time we vote, it seems. Although there are some good candidates from time to time, but they're few and far between. Verse 3, and we'll study verse 3 for a little while. Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria. And I sure am glad he's the king. I don't have to say Tiglath-Pileser anymore, do I, girls? Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hosea became his servant and gave him presents. Well, that's not at all what God had intended or instructed Israel to do, is to become servants to a Gentile nation. He said, you're going to run them off. They'll answer to you. You don't answer to them. But here we are. Did Israel think in their disobedience to God and in all the, the consequences they've suffered, did they think Assyria was just going to leave them alone and say, oh, that poor nation, they're under the judgment of God. Let's, let's not bother them any. Not at all. Israel's failure to stand on God's word and to require their leaders, their king, their priests to do the same would continue to bring God's judgment on them. And now they are no longer governed by their own leaders but by those of the Gentile nation of Assyria. I want to share something with you about why Israel was in the shape it was in and why we're in the shape we're in now, why mankind in general all over the world is in the shape he is in. I briefly shared this with Brother Fulton on the phone the other day, and I'll enlarge upon it here. When Adam and Eve were in the garden before sin entered into the world, they were under one government, and that was God's government. And they enjoyed everything that God put before them, including each other. And there was only one law that restrained their behavior, and that was do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there was a penalty attached to that. And it wasn't probation, it was death. For in the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And as we've learned, there was more than one death associated with that. There was a physical death, and then there was a spiritual death, as man was separated from God because of sin. And now that they were under sin's curse and had been expelled from the Garden of Eden, Mankind would continue to sin and to reject God's government. And so man governed himself by doing that which was right in his own eyes, a phrase you will see in the Bible from time to time, particularly in the Old Testament. And God saw that the thoughts 
the intents of the heart, the works of man were evil. So he destroyed the earth with a flood in his righteous judgment. And because he is also gracious, he saved seven people on that ark. And those seven people continued to multiply and they continued to sin and they continued to reject God's government. And in his great love, he called out a people unto himself, and that was the nation of Israel. And he appointed Moses as their leader, and he ordained a priesthood so that the people would learn how to be accepted by God. The people continued to reject God's government. So he delivered them into the hands of their enemies, kind of like what we're seeing here. They had to pay taxes to their enemies, work for them, and were even enslaved, imprisoned, and killed by their enemies. In the book of Judges, <clears throat> chapter 2, when God gave Israel judges, the people still would not obey. They went a-whoring after other gods which means they went a-whoring after other governments. And when God gave them prophets, the people rejected the prophets. When the people demanded to have a king, God said, All right, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And they gave him Saul. We saw how that went. And most of the kings, all the way up through the time we're studying, and it will be so afterward, were evil. Most of them were. And so were the people. So where are we now? We are in the same place as Israel and Judah. We're not any different. We, and let's just narrow it down to the United States, but you could go to every country and say the same thing. We're reaping the consequences of rejecting God's government. Now here are some examples from my own household. My wife and I are in the 22% federal income tax bracket, and I suppose several of you are too. And that means that I work from January 1st to March 21st for the United States government before I see one dime of the fruits of my own labor. Now, that doesn't count any other taxes. That's just my federal income tax. Guess what happens if I don't pay it? I go to prison. I go to federal prison, and my property and my assets can be seized to pay for the tax and the penalties and the interest. Now, that's just federal income tax. Secondly, praise God, my wife and I are debt-free, and we own our own house. We don't, have, we don't owe anybody anything. And we own our own house. That's what you think. We also have to pay Rockwall County property taxes. And last year's check was for almost $6,000. That's just my property taxes. Guess what happens if I don't pay? I lose the house. And I still have to pay. Thirdly, from my paycheck, the federal government deducts 1.45% of the fruits of my labor 
for Medicare taxes. If you're self-employed, like I was for 14 years, it's double that because I'm the business and I'm the employee. If you make over $200,000, it's more than that. Fourth, from my paycheck, the federal government deducts 6.2% for Social Security since I began working on record. Now, I've been working my whole life, but it became a matter of record when I turned 15 and got my first W-2. And since I began working, I have paid $245,578 into Social Security. Now, you just think about that for a moment. And I will continue paying 6.2% of my salary as long as I work. And let's say I retire at the age of 65. According to yesterday's numbers on the Social Security Administration, I'll draw $2,608 a month if it's still solvent. Now, what if I could take that money that I've put in there could take it out right now. I mean, at the age of 57, about to be 58, what if I could take my money out right now and put it into a growth and income stock fund, that, and I'm going to use a very modest growth number, 7%. If I could find one that earns 7%, by age 65, I would have $429,227. By age 70, I'll get to your age in just a minute, by age 70, I would have $608,484. Now imagine if I had been allowed to invest that money from the time I turned 15 until now. Fifthly, when I go to the store and purchase a $20 item, there's a tax of 8.25% added to it, which makes the new price $20.65. When I buy a gallon of gas, there is a built-in tax of 38.4 cents a gallon. It's more if you buy diesel, by the way, unless you're a farmer. But it's 38.4 cents a gallon. 18.4 cents of that goes to the federal government and 20 cents goes to the state of Texas. California's gas tax is 86.55 cents per gallon. It's more than double. I could go on with other examples, but let me say this. It is very expensive to reject God's government. In the Garden of Eden, there were no taxes. Outside the garden, Abel brought to the Lord the firstling of his flock. Under the law, the Lord commanded the children of Israel to bring the first fruits of their labor their cattle, a small portion of their money. And there were no other governments, and the people could enjoy what they produced if they remained under God's government, even though God's government outside the garden wasn't the same as it was in the garden. He had to give them commandments because of their sin, and he had to give them the sacrifices and the offerings so that they could approach him. And when Brother Fulton and I discussed this truth, though in less detail, he correctly stated that by rejecting God's government, 
Mankind has enslaved itself. In being ruled by the Assyrian government, we see that result in Israel or in Judah. So the next time you get angry about the endless taxes imposed by your federal or state or local government, remember, all of this, every bit of it, is a result of man rejecting God's government in favor of the governments of mankind. God said, you want a king? I'll give you a king, but you know what's going to come with it? And, and God told Israel what would come with King Saul. He's going to do this to your sons. He's going to do this to your daughters. They're going to be serving in the military and all of these things. You know, Israel, in the days that God led them through the wilderness, they didn't have a standing army. They didn't need one because God protected them. He delivered them. He guided them. They didn't have to have police officers. I'd have been out of a job. I would have had to do something else, grow tomatoes or, or whatever. But I wouldn't have had to referee arguments between grown people who are usually both acting like children. And furthermore, just as God delivered Israel and Judah into the hands of their enemies because of disobedience, he will do the same to us. And he already has in some respect. Even in my lifetime, I've seen those consequences play out. And they're not over with. Now look back in your text there in verse 18 where it says, He became his servant. I'm sorry, uh, I said 18. We're, we're in chapter 17. Look there in verse 3 where it says, Hosea became his servant. He became the servant of the king of Assyria. Now what king of any stripe, what king would be pleased to become the servant of an enemy king? How would this be okay with Hosea? He had to justify in his own twisted mind that it was better to serve Assyria than to repent and serve God. He's made this justification in his own mind. And it says in verse 3, and gave him presents. Hosea gave the king of Assyria presents. And presents is the same word that is translated offering more often in the Old Testament. Now, what is one thing we learned about offerings or presents and the way God sees them? In 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. If Hosea would have obeyed the Lord, then he would not have felt the need to give presents to the king of Assyria. And just like Ahaz's offerings to the Lord were insincere and unholy. Remember, he moved the altars around and brought his own and tried to offer to the Lord the people's offerings and his offerings on those, those unholy altars. 
And just as his offerings to the Lord were insincere, we're going to see that his offerings, his presence to the king of Assyria were also insincere. You know, the, we looked at the financial cost of disobeying the Lord, of rejecting the Lord, just a snippet from one person's life or one household. But the spiritual cost of disobeying the Lord cannot be calculated. We don't have a full understanding of what all that entails, but we know it's expensive. And how expensive was it spiritually and financially for Hosea to disobey the Lord? When Israel and Judah turned to the Lord, he delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. He did it every time. Sometimes they had to wait. Sometimes he said, I'll not deliver you right now. I'm not done with this judgment that I've poured out. But in time, he would deliver his people. In the days of Solomon, you remember, there were 40 years of peace. There was peace in the land. The land had rest, the Bible says. In the days of Othniel, who was the first judge of Israel, there were 40 years of peace after their enemies had been defeated. Not only was Israel at peace when they obeyed the Lord, but they also didn't have to give presents to their enemies. And those presents given to the enemies weren't presents in the sense of tokens of gratitude or appreciation like we might give someone who's been faithful at work for 30 years and we give them a plaque and maybe a gift certificate to somewhere to eat. And so we appreciate your loyalty and your faithfulness to the company. And this is a small token. That's not what these presents were. <laughs> we're going to see that these presents were protection money. Look at verse 4. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to So, king of Egypt, and brought no present to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Conspiracy, also the word treason, also the word confederacy. It is an unlawful alliance. And it has to involve at least two parties. You don't conspire with yourself. You conspire with someone else. And this conspiracy involved two parties, the king of Egypt and the king of Judah or king of Israel in this case. And this conspiracy involved two elements. One, King Hosea sending messengers to the king of Egypt, and two, King Hosea withholding presents from the king of Assyria. And it says, Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So that lets us know that these presents or gifts were protection money. Because when the protection money ran out, the protection ran out, didn't it? He was only free. Ahaz was only free as long as he paid off the Assyrian king. It's awfully expensive to disobey to the Lord. You not only lose your money, but you also lose your freedom. And that's what happened here. Verse 5 then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it for three years. 
Now, disobeying the Lord, plus withholding the protection money from the king of Assyria, equaled a trip to prison, equaled besiegement by the nation of Assyria. And do you know what a rebellious person would say about now in this kind of situation? They'd say, well, how could God let something happen like this? Listen, not only does God let this type of thing happen, but God causes this type of thing to happen. Don't fool yourself. Don't listen to the drumbeat of the self-righteous world who says, well, how would a, a God who loves people allow this or that to happen? Oh, most of the time God brings it to pass if it is a matter of his judgment. He's warned the people of the consequences of their sin. The people have disobeyed him, whether it was then or now. And the people who disobey God's law should expect that he will bring about the consequences of their sin, no matter how terrible the world thinks they are. And also, in such a case, some people will blame Satan for something God is doing. In Job chapter 1, verse 12, God gave Satan specific power to test Job. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. So what Satan did to Job afterward could be attributed to Satan, because the Bible specifically tells us that God let Satan do it. But if God had not let Satan do this, then Satan would have been restrained from doing it. God said, don't, in the first round, don't you touch him. And Satan didn't, because he couldn't. But he did the second time when God said, you can touch him, but don't take his life. However, the trials that Job went through were not consequences for his own sin. Because the Bible told us, in all this, Job sinned not with his mouth, neither charged God foolishly. But consider what God said to Israel about what would happen if they sinned. I'll read you a couple of verses from Deuteronomy 28 as we close. But it shall come to pass, if thou wilt not hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God, to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day, that all these curses shall come upon thee and overtake thee. So that's kind of the heading of what everything else that's written after that. Here are some of those curses. From verse 33 it says, The fruit of thy land and all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up, and thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed alway. So when a people is being oppressed and crushed by another nation, all of their resources have been dried up and taken away from them because they've been disobedient to God. They don't need to blame that one on Satan. They made the choice to disobey God. Yes, Satan put it in their heart to do so. He loves it when we disobey God. And then in verse 36 of, of Deuteronomy 28, another curse, the Lord shall bring thee. Listen to who does this. The Lord shall bring thee and thy king which thou shalt set over thee unto a nation which neither thou nor thy fathers have known. And there shalt thou serve other gods, wood and stone. Is that not exactly what is happening to Ahaz? He's now under the control of another king, and he is serving other gods. 
It'd be worth your time to reread Deuteronomy chapter 28 because the consequences God lays out there apply to anyone who disobeys his word. And with that, we'll close and be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, sometimes your word has hard sayings for us. But they're there for our learning and our admonition. They're there for our good to keep our foot from evil. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to take what we learned today to make the application in our own walk and our own lives and to accept that what you've said about it is true and let that shape our opinions and our desires, our perspective about what's going on in this world. Help us to be bright and shining lights until Jesus comes. It's his